What Makes a Killer contains graphic details of sexual assault and violence and is not intended for all audiences. Listener discretion is strongly advised. It's October 16, 1977, in Edinburgh, Scotland. The body of a 17-year-old girl was found on a deserted beach. She had been raped, bound, and gagged. Then, just a few hours later, the body of a second teenage girl was found in a field, just a few miles away. She, too, had been bound, raped, and murdered. It was the death of innocence within Edinburgh. It was the sort of thing that didn't happen here. Later, the girls were identified as friends, Helen and Christine. The two young women had last been seen alive the previous evening at the World's End pub in Edinburgh. These two 17-year-old girls, one day they're there and the next day they're not. Their murders prompted one of the biggest manhunts in Scotland's history. But it would take nearly 40 years for investigators to discover who was behind the crime. The legacy of the World's End murders for me is that actually justice will catch up with you if you're somebody who has committed a horrendous crime, a violent crime in the past, and there's been some physical evidence, then it's only a matter of time before you're brought to justice. After years of waiting for advances in forensic analysis, the investigation finally closed in on the perpetrator, a man who was a known pedophile and convicted killer. But before he was caught, the killer would go on to claim the life of another teenage girl and sexually assault more than a dozen children. They knew he was a violent man, but they didn't connect the dots. This is what makes a killer, a true crime series that chronicles the lives of the world's most notorious killers. I'm your host, Jennifer Natoso. In every episode, we'll trace a killer's origins, examine their behavior, and follow their path to bloodshed. In this episode, we'll discuss Angus Sinclair. Angus Sinclair was born on June 7, 1945, in Glasgow, Scotland. He was the youngest of three children and was raised in the underprivileged neighborhood of St. George's Cross. Criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says Sinclair was likely exposed to violence and crime at an early age. Sinclair was born in Glasgow in the post-war years, and, and this was a time of real change and real upheaval for the city. There was a lot of poverty and there was quite a significant gang culture, so violence was part and parcel of everyday life for many young men. As he got older, Sinclair was subjected to bullying during his school years, says journalist Jeffrey Wansell. He was the runt of the litter, but he was also small. By the time he'd reached puberty, he was constantly being bullied, knocked about, thrown about. What's more, Sinclair's father had tragically passed when he was just four years old. I think that certainly increased his feeling of depression, of being an outsider, of not being like everybody else. And he chose to identify with petty theft and petty crime as his revolt against the world. In 1959, local journalist Marcello Mega says a teenage Sinclair committed his first offense. 
He was only 13 when he stole the offertory box at the local church, and that uh, led to him uh, having a criminal conviction. At the same time, former homicide detective Tom Wood says the young Sinclair became preoccupied with sex. Now, the early sexualization of young men is a clue to problems later on. And we start to see this pattern in Angus Sinclair. When he was 15, Sinclair's bad behavior escalated to violence when he viciously attacked an eight-year-old girl. If there was a trigger to the career that he then went on to found as a rapist and a murderer, 1961 was probably the moment in which it started, because later in the year, he committed the first serious attack on a neighbor, young girl, near, lived nearby. On July 1st, 1961, Sinclair attacked another young girl. This time, the victim was seven-year-old Catherine, a child living in a neighboring apartment in the building. Sinclair was home alone when he saw his opportunity. He's 16 at the time, and there's, there's quite a lot of respect amongst children for older children. So he asks her to run an errand for him, and, and she goes out and she does it. Now, when she comes back, he attacks her. Sinclair took the girl up to his flat, and then he pounced. But in the middle of his assault, he suddenly stopped. There's a knock at the door, and he just literally stops what he's doing and goes and answers the door and sends the neighbor away. Sinclair got rid of the visitor and went back to attacking the girl. He raped her, he killed her, using a ligature from a bicycle in a bicycle tube. It's a vicious, premeditated, calculating, callous attack on an utterly innocent young girl. Sinclair had slaughtered Catherine, and now he needed a plan to dispose of her body. I think most 16-year-olds would panic, but what he did was he sorted out her lower clothing to try to hide the fact that it had been a sexual attack. He rolled her body down the stairs, and he, he left it there to be found, obviously hoping that it would look as though she had fallen downstairs and, and, and injured herself. He left Catherine's body at the bottom of the communal staircase inside of the apartment building, and she was quickly discovered by neighbors. She was confirmed dead the following day. Neighbors took note of strange behavior from Sinclair after Catherine was discovered and informed authorities. Knowing that he'd left a dead body there and went off and, and made a point of speaking to people, and he, he paid a visit to his older brother, which was clearly a, an attempt to establish an alibi. He had been seen out and about talking to people and appearing not to have a care in the world. Investigators brought Sinclair in for questioning. Initially, the 16-year-old denied any involvement in the crime. But after investigators enlisted the help of Sinclair's older brother, he began to talk. Eventually, he confesses. His older brother persuades him that he should tell the truth, and he confesses. And because of his youth, he's not convicted of murder. He's convicted of culpable homicide, and he's sentenced to 10 years imprisonment. At his sentencing in Edinburgh's High Court on August 25, 1961, the judge, Lord McIntosh, called Sinclair callous, cunning, and wicked. The assessment said that his lust for sex was so great 
that nothing would stop him from reoffending in the future and that he'd shown no remorse. Despite only being 16 years old, the judge sent Sinclair to an adult prison to serve out his sentence. He doesn't seem affected by the fact that he's just taken somebody else's life for the first time. If anything, he's probably quite enjoying it. He knows that he's created this chaos. Forensic psychologist Rex Bieber says it's unlikely that Sinclair felt any regret for the crimes he had committed. In my examination of sexual offenders, I have never found a pedophile who attacks young girls to be genuinely remorseful. What they have is what I, I call judicial remorse. That's the remorse that sets in when you're facing a judicial officer. While in prison, Sinclair was surrounded by older men, many of whom were seasoned criminals. It's likely these men taught him a thing or two about how to commit more crimes when he was released from prison. After serving seven years of his 10-year sentence, Sinclair returned to society. While in prison, Sinclair had also been learning the skills needed to become a house painter, and after being released, he landed himself a job. This position ended up being the perfect cover for his violent acts. Typically, we found he was doing a painting job, and during lunch hour, he goes out and does a very, very serious and violent assault and robbery on somebody with a hammer, and he goes back in the afternoon to put on the second coat of paint. In 1968, Sinclair moved into an apartment in Hill Place in the heart of Edinburgh, just a five-minute walk from the World's End pub. Sinclair had started his own painting business and settled down. It's common in many prisoners. Many people will develop some kind of skill and some kind of thing when they're inside that they'll be able to use afterwards. He was a painter and decorator. So this enables him access to people's homes. It allows him, you know, into to people's private spaces. In 1970, a now 25-year-old Sinclair married a trainee nurse. 18 months later, they had a son. He has a flat, he gets married, so it looks like there's this veneer of respectability, there's this facade of normality. And you could look back and say, well, hey, he's turning it around here. It is very common for people who have paraphilias, sexual psychopathologies, to have almost two different selves. The self that they uh, manifest when they're engaging in a predatory attack and a marriage and a family. And some of them, by the way, are good husbands. Uh, some of them are good fathers. None of these things tells us anything about the proclivity to engage in sexual misconduct. All appeared normal with the young family. But on the inside, Sinclair still had dark desires festering. As a result, he developed a double life. What he's doing, he's actually being quite instrumental. He's taking care of his own needs because he wants dinner on the table, he wants a roof over his head, and he wants to be able to go out in the evening on the weekend and, and do what he likes. Cerebral is an online mental health service that offers prescription medication, counseling, and therapy for anxiety, depression, ADHD, insomnia, and more. 
Cerebral is one of the few services that provides prescription medication online through a licensed provider and ships medications straight to your door, meaning you don't have to deal with those pharmacy lines. With the Cerebral mobile app, it's like having your personal care team right in your pocket. You can message your team and access self-care resources wherever you are. You can connect with your counselor and therapist on your own schedule through your laptop or the Cerebral mobile app. With Cerebral, you can get affordable treatments that are one-third the price of traditional therapy, plus treatment options are available with or without insurance. Cerebral is in-network for several insurers, and they're working every day to grow their partnerships. With in-network, your monthly cost is even lower. And 50% of Cerebral's clinicians self-identify as people of color. It's important to Cerebral to have the diversity so everyone can get the treatment they deserve. For listeners of What Makes a Killer, you can receive 65% off your first month of medication management and care counseling at Cerebral.com what. Go to Cerebral.com what for 65% off your first month. That's C-E-R-E-B-R-A-L dot com slash what. That 65% off means it's just a total of 30 bucks to get started. Join Cerebral today on their mission to make quality mental health care accessible and affordable for all. A married man, Sinclair was now part of a new family. After meeting his wife's family, he became very close with one member. His wife had a brother called Gordon Hamilton, who became Sinclair's partner in crime. Gordon Hamilton eventually moved in with the couple, and Sinclair purchased a Toyota Hiace Caravanette, a type of camper van, that they would use for weekends away together. They would go fishing together, but this relationship was incredibly toxic because both of these men had a particular view of what women were there for, who women are, how they should behave. Sinclair couldn't suppress his deviant sexual urges. He starts off very early on having young child victims. I suspect for no other reason than that's all he has access to. But he rapidly moves on to adolescent young adult victims. It was never officially proven, but Sinclair and Hamilton are suspected of committing a series of crimes across Scotland in the 1970s. These included robbery and sexual assault. Angus Sinclair's a thief. He's a robber. He's a painter and decorator. He's a family man, and he's a sexual predator. And he keeps all of these activities discreetly within little boxes in his life. Never the twain shall meet. Highly organized, he executes his plans well. Then in 1977, the pair escalated. What happens to most sexual predators is, from their perspective, the impulse to attack again comes out of nowhere, just bubbles up out of the depth of their evil soul. They begin to engage in, in hunting behavior. As the duo grew in confidence, it's believed they turned to murder. There were three murders in and around the Glasgow area in that same time period that we were convinced were committed by the same people, and in particular, Angus Sickle. The first victim in this string of killings was a 20-year-old woman named Anna. She was last seen having a drink in a Glasgow pub in August of 1977. She was with a friend called Wilma, and Wilma went on to marry Gordon Hamilton, Sinclair's partner in crime. 
She's disappeared when she was looking for a cab. Her body was finally found in a shallow grave two years later in Argyllshire, not far from where Sinclair had gone on his honeymoon. Two months later, another local woman from Glasgow disappeared under similar circumstances. In October, before, two weeks before the World's End killings, Hilda, who was 36 and divorced mother of two, disappeared from the Plaza Ballroom in Glasgow. Both women went missing on their way home after a night out. When police discovered their bodies, both had been raped and strangled with their hands and feet bound. Just two weeks after committing the murders in Glasgow, Sinclair and Hamilton moved their hunting to Edinburgh. On October 15, 1977, two school friends, Helen Scott and Christine Eady, were drinking at the World's End pub in the center of the city. Kevin Scott is Helen's brother. He remembers the last time he saw his sister alive. Helen left school at 15, and then she went on to get a job within a kilt maker's company, uh, which is where she was working up until um, the, the day that she died. Christine was working uh, as a typist, I think, in an accountant's office. I believe she'd done that for some time. On the day in October, Helen was working. I remember her leaving the house that morning, and her, and her plans were to, to meet our friends straight from work and, and then just go out for a few drinks in Edinburgh, a normal Saturday, and nothing out of the ordinary. Now, these two young girls, Helen and Christine, they were children, really. Um, they were firm friends. They'd been brought up together, and they were inseparable. Christine was very bubbly and could be quite feisty. Helen, on the other hand, was just a lovely, soft girl. Christine was very much the leader of the pair. She was slightly older by a few months. They both came from very good families. The families loved and cared for them. They certainly didn't have any experience of the kind of dangers that lay uh, there for them. And they were innocents, really. We know that Helen and Christine's evening was one that involved, you know, a pub crawl and lots of drinks with friends. They ended up in the World's End. That was the last port of call. Among the patrons at the World's End pub that night were sexual predators Angus Sinclair and Gordon Hamilton. Helen and Christine were approached by two men. We know from witnesses who were there that night and who were interviewed at the time that they appear to be, you know, quite happy having a, a laugh. During their investigation, detectives interviewed everyone who came in and out of the pub that night. It took a long time to do, but we managed to really boil down where most of the people were during that night. And they remembered distinctly Helen and Christine falling into conversation with these two young men. They were smartly dressed, short-haired, which was quite unusual at the time because uh, the late 1970s was a time when young men frequently had long hair. Toward the end of the night, Sinclair and Hamilton put their plan in motion. Their friends last saw them leaving the pub in the company of these two young men. I don't mean they went off as two couples, they just left the club together. They walked out of the pub, down into Victoria Street. These two men are people that the locals didn't recognise, so they did appear to be strangers. 
At approximately 11.15, the group of four was seen heading into the city. They were last seen leaving the pub on their way to a party with these two men. The best witness statement to indicate that they were together came from a police officer who was on duty that night in the, the High Street, which is part of the Royal Mile, and, and it's where the, the World's End pub is based. In these days, we used to quite routinely make sure there was no problems as pubs spilled out onto the street. So actually, there was a young constable there who saw them leaving. Helen was wearing a distinctive coat. She had bought a very good quality Burberry coat with one of her first wages. The two men were about to commit one of the most heinous crimes in Scottish history. Sinclair usually operated alone, but he was also a social killer. And he would sometimes hunt like a specific animal, the wolf. Wolves hunt in packs. Wolves have learned that if you move in packs, your chances of success and predation are greater. And so he picked up Hamilton. That night, Helen and Christine got into Sinclair's camper van. He and Hamilton drove the women away from the city to their final destination. It's pretty clear that Sinclair and Hamilton abducted the girls, put them into the caravanette, which they'd gone fishing in, and drove them to remote locations. And it's painful to say it, they were abducted, raped, strangled, their bodies were discarded at different sites. Uh, they'd been bound with items of their own clothing. While the exact location of the crimes remains a mystery, investigators do know that Sinclair and Hamilton drove to Gosford Bay, Aberlady, the site where they left Christine's body. Christine Eady's body was found dumped on the foreshore. Hands were tied behind her back. After dumping Christine's body, the men drove to Haddington in East Lothian. Helen's body was found some miles away, six or seven miles away, uh, near Coates Farm. Again, she was naked, but only from the waist down. She had a new coat, which she was still wearing. Her hands also had been tied behind her back, and Christine's belt was around her neck. She, too, had been strangled. She had been raped. A footprint mark was found on her face, and a handbag disappeared. These two 17-year-old girls, one day they're there and the next day they're not. The next morning, Helen's parents were alarmed to discover that their daughter hadn't returned from her evening out with Christine. Immediately, they knew something was very wrong. On Sunday morning, obviously Helen hadn't come home, and I remember my parents making a number of phone calls um, to the, the girls that she'd been out with that night to see if she had happened to stay the night, which she'd never done before. And when that became clear that that wasn't the case, clearly my parents were very, very worried, so we went to a local police station where they reported Helen missing. They effectively disappear off the face of the earth. No one knows what's happened to them. Their families report them missing. It is as if they have been whisked off the street Christine's body was found on the afternoon of October 16, 1977, less than 24 hours after she had been killed. About the middle of the day, we received information that a dog walker down on the beach at Aberlady had found the body of a young girl lying on the tideline at Aberlady Bay. 
And that same afternoon, investigators informed Helen's family that her body had been found as well. I honestly don't remember what was said, but at that point, my, my father went away with the, the, the police officer to then go and identify Helen's body. But it was clear at that point it was Helen. Kevin was just 11 years old when his sister died. I remember the day after Helen was, was murdered and, and just sitting on the steps uh, in the house, just looking at the front door, trying to get my head around the fact that she's, you know, she's never going to walk through that door again. A family was broken for a period of time, and, and I think that's natural. We still got on day to day and so on and so forth, but I don't recall any sort of family holidays thereafter or, or not for a very long period of time. The police launched one of the largest manhunts in Scottish history to find the people responsible for these senseless murders. Investigators were able to recover vital evidence from both crime scenes. After being collected, the evidence was taken to a new police forensics lab in Edinburgh for analysis. At the time, the lab had only been open for about a year. Forensic scientist Lester Nibb was one of the lab's first employees. He was there when the World's End case was brought in. I was 25. I'd been working at Lothian and Borders Police in Edinburgh. I was the third person into the lab, and there was a fourth. So there were chemists and biologists, and I was the assistant biologist. Lester Nibb analyzed deposits found on the bodies of the two women and on the ropes used to bind them. The forensic team also paid close attention to the new coat Helen was wearing when she was attacked. On the inside of the coat, we found quite a large amount of seminal staining consistent with sexual intercourse. And this, of course, would have to come from an attacker. And so the, the main concentration was on that in terms of blood grouping. First of all, proving it was semen and finding spermatozoa, and then doing the blood grouping tests that we had available. At the time, forensic testing was still a new tool in crime investigations. But with such key evidence, scientists were hopeful that their analysis could help pinpoint the killer. Now, blood grouping on these materials should be fairly straightforward when it's that fresh, but it actually proved quite difficult to get good, clear results on, so we had to kind of abandon those results. We weren't able to get terribly clear results on that. Without clear results, the forensic investigation foundered. All the while, the newly branded World End Killers remained at large. Hoping that future advancements in technology could help solve the case, Lester Nibb and his team held on to the samples. Relatively early in 1978, the police kind of drew a close. We produced a report, an interim report, to keep the police up to date with what we'd found. And effectively, all the, the exhibits were taken away for storage by the police. The investigation went cold. And then just over a year after the World's End murders, Sinclair struck again. On November 19, 1978, he was lurking near Barnhill Station in the suburbs of Glasgow when he spotted 17-year-old machinist Mary Gallagher. Mary Gallagher was in her late teens, but the significant thing about Mary is that she was tiny. She looked like a child. 
Mary Gallagher was going to meet her friend over the other side of the railway tracks, and her mother saw her set out, her, her sister saw her set out as well. Mary was last seen leaving her home at 6.45 p.m. Sinclair threatened Mary with a knife. He demanded that she took her clothes off, and he slit her throat with a knife. This was a really, really nasty attack. It would take more than 20 years to prove that Sinclair was Mary's killer. Meanwhile, he continued to commit a wide variety of offenses. One of the extraordinary things about Sinclair was known to the police. He had a reputation as a mugger. At one point, he got a handgun conviction. They knew he was a violent man, but they didn't connect the dots. Sinclair was a man who got away with it for a very long time. Between 1978 and 1982, 11 children reported being sexually assaulted by Sinclair. Over a number of years, we think exclusively targeted children because there aren't any unsolved rapes or rapes and murders of that time from about 1978 to 1982 that match his M.O. Sinclair would ask them to run an errand for him, and then when they returned, he would attack them. During this time, Sinclair continued to use his job as a painter as a cover for his crimes. But in June 1982, his dark deeds finally caught up with him. Sinclair was in the Woodlands area of Glasgow where he assaulted a six-year-old girl. But this time, the young girl was able to identify her attacker. One girl, six-year-old girl, who he carried out a really serious sexual assault on, recognised the smell of turpentine on him. He was dressed as a painter and flecks of paint were on his hair and shoes. 37-year-old Angus Sinclair was finally behind bars. He stood trial at Edinburgh's High Court, and on August 31st, 1982, he was convicted of three charges of rape, seven charges of lewd and libidinous practices, and a breach of the peace. He was charged with sexual assault in 13 children, and he pleaded guilty to 11 of them, and three of them were rapes, and that was enough to get him a life sentence. He was sent to serve his time in Peterhead Prison on Scotland's east coast, just north of Aberdeen. Now a convicted pedophile and killer, Sinclair's crime spree came to an end. However, he and his partner, Gordon Hamilton, still hadn't been exposed as the world's end murderers. It would be years before forensic technology advanced enough to discover the two men responsible for those hideous killings. In 1997, the families of three women in Scotland still had no answers as to who murdered their daughters in the late 1970s. Helen Scott and Christine Eady had been murdered after leaving the World's End pub with two men, and Mary Gallagher was last seen leaving her house on her way to visit a friend. Unbeknownst to investigators, all three women had been murdered by the same man. After several previous unsuccessful attempts to solve the mystery, Strathclyde Police Force reopened the cold case files of Mary's murder. Hers was the oldest unsolved murder case, 19 years old. But former homicide detective Tom Wood says there was still key evidence at the disposal of investigators. Mary Gallagher's crime had been left unsolved. They looked out and they found forensic um, samples 
but she'd been kept from the Mirigalaka killing. Police asked their forensic lab to reanalyze the crime scene evidence from the victim. And this time, the technology had advanced far enough to give them solid results. After the evidence was run through a database of DNA samples the lab had on file, criminologist Dr. Elizabeth Yardley says the forensic scientists had a breakthrough. Sinclair, who had been in prison, had given a DNA sample whilst he was in prison, and that DNA sample matched some semen that was found on Mary's pubic hair. So it was, without a doubt, he was the offender in this case. Investigators finally had clear evidence, and Angus Sinclair was charged with the murder of Mary Gallagher. On June 1st, 2001, he stood trial, just weeks before he was eligible to apply for parole. And though the concrete evidence showed that Sinclair had been with Mary the night she was killed, he came up with a cover story, says journalist Jeffrey Wansel. Sinclair produces the excuse which is going to become his signature in the next decade. He says the sex with Mary was entirely consensual. That story didn't sit well with the jury, nor convince them of his innocence. After 12 days on trial in Glasgow's high court, Sinclair was declared guilty after just five minutes of deliberation. For the second time in his life, Sinclair was convicted of murder and given another life sentence. His conviction brought long-awaited relief to both Mary's family and the police. And yet, Sinclair still harbored a secret. He and his former accomplice, brother-in-law Gordon Hamilton, still hadn't been tied to the World's End murders. It had been more than 30 years since the depraved double murder of 17-year-old friends Helen and Christine after a night out in Edinburgh. And the police hadn't given up on catching the killers. After a year of intense investigation, with the biggest murder team we ever put together in Lothian Borders. We literally ran out of clues. We ran out of anything useful to do. But we still had the forensic samples. We still had Helen's coat. Encouraged by the conviction in the Mary Gallagher case, in 2004, Tom Wood and his team decided to re-examine the forensic evidence. We sent samples of the coat for another analysis. And this time, the, the scientists could tell us that there wasn't one DNA sample on this coat, but there were two. So we sent the second sample away to be compared with the database. And straight away, within hours, we got back a hit. It was Angus Robertson Sinclair. With one suspect confirmed, police worked to identify the second man whose DNA was found on Helen's coat. Very quickly, we found out that there was a familial line running through the DNA sample we had found, which led back to the Hamilton family. So we knew that the person who had been with Angus Sinclair at the time of the World's End murders, it was his brother-in-law. Now, all investigators needed to prove that Gordon Hamilton was Sinclair's accomplice in the double murder was a sample of his DNA. But by 2004, Hamilton had been dead for more than seven years. He died in 1996. Now, 
It was incredibly difficult because there was nothing left of Gordon Hamilton. He had been cremated, he hadn't been buried, we couldn't exhume his body to take DNA samples. Then, a development. Detectives discovered that Hamilton had done work on a house in Glasgow. There, they were able to uncover a project he had worked on and managed to collect DNA samples from it. The tests came back and they were conclusive. Hamilton's DNA matched the samples found on both victims. And at that time, we stopped and we gathered ourselves and gathered all the information and set up Operation Trinity. And I was appointed to lead Operation Trinity. In what was one of the largest criminal investigations in Scottish history, Tom Wood led a team of more than 60 retired officers from three police forces. Wood and his officers reviewed more than 1,000 murders that took place across Scotland between 1968 and 2004. There were several murders in Glasgow that also bore a resemblance to the World's End murders. They all had been committed within about six months during late 1977, early 1978. Once we'd completed Operation Trinity, we put in a report to the Crown, suggesting that Angus Sinclair be charged with the World's End murders. There was a lack of strong evidence to suggest Sinclair had committed any of the other unsolved cases. As a result, the prosecution zeroed in on convicting Sinclair of the murders of Helen and Christine. On August 27, 2007, at the High Court of Justiciary in Edinburgh, Angus Sinclair finally stood trial for the World's End murders. The Crown decided to take a very, very simple approach to the case. They decided not to bother with all the supporting evidence, the hairs and fibers, the knots, nothing like that. They decided just to go on the simple, straightforward DNA. Here is a girl that's been murdered. Here is her coat. On that coat is DNA, and the DNA belongs to Angus Sinclair. End of story. Sinclair and his lawyers seized the opportunity to shift the blame elsewhere. Eventually, in 2004, the DNA evidence points conclusively to Sinclair as part of the world's end killings. Sinclair stands trial, but comes up with what to him, I'm sure, seemed a perfect defense. Oh, yes, I am. Oh, well, I mean, this DNA proves I had sex with uh, Christine and Helen after the world's end. But of course, it was entirely consensual. And when I left them with my brother-in-law, Gordon, they were alive and well, and as far as I was aware, in fine spirits. It was all Gordon's fault. That was his defense. Sinclair's testimony was enough to prove reasonable doubt. The judge decided that because of the suggestion of consensual sex, then that the whole of the DNA evidence which was being put forward by the Crown was no longer relevant. None of the supporting evidence had been included by the Crown, and therefore the case fell in 2007. Without any other forensic evidence, Judge Lord Clark threw the case out. It was one of the worst days of my life. I mean, I, I can remember it distinctly, yet. Yeah, there was just this sense of total disbelief. The families of both Helen and Christine were gutted by the news. They had been waiting 30 years for someone to answer for the crimes committed against their daughters. 
News of the decision quickly sparked outrage across all of Scotland. When the trial collapsed, a lot of journalists, politicians, and significantly the Lord Advocate themselves, who's in charge of all prosecutions in Scotland, said, whoa, stop. Something about this isn't right. And that started a pretty root and branch review of the justice system, particularly when it comes to double jeopardy. Scotland was one of the last countries in Western Europe to have a double jeopardy law, meaning you couldn't be tried for the same crime twice. It was overhauled in the wake of the 2007 trial. So the law changed, and then Angus Sinclair was the first person to be retried under the double jeopardy legislation. Helen's brother, Kevin Scott, remembers the day the second trial was announced. When the go-ahead for the second trial was given, I came out of the court and I, I phoned my dad straight away to tell him. It wasn't about celebrating. None of this has ever been about celebrating. But what it did do was just give that opportunity to bring this chapter to an end. On October 13th, 2014, a now 69-year-old Angus Sinclair stood trial once again for the murders of the two 17-year-old friends. This time, Crown prosecutors used all the latest forensic technology to make their case. The trial lasted weeks, attended every day, and this time, the Crown got it absolutely right. I mean, there was compelling evidence from knots to soil samples to DNA to just a whole picture was put together. Exactly what should have happened in 2007 and didn't. And the jury convicted him unanimously. There was no question whatsoever. Judge Lord Matthews sentenced Angus Sinclair to 37 years in prison. It was the longest sentence ever given in Scottish legal history. For me, it took 24 hours to sink in, and it was the, f the following day where all of a sudden you just felt different, lighter. It was so massively important. I'm so pleased for my dad as well that he saw justice for Helen Christine in his lifetime. Angus Sinclair would be over 100 years old before being considered for parole. However, he would die alone in his cell just a few years later in March of 2019. Angus Sinclair saw women and children as disposable objects, essentially there for his own pleasure. He was a predator. He made that choice time and time and time again to harm other people and never felt bad about it. A few days after the guilty verdict, I went to Helen's grave and there was, I didn't count the number of roses, but there could well have been upwards of 30 with a small card which said, from a nation we will never forget. That's mind-blowing. What Makes a Killer is an Audio Boom original series in production with Woodcut Media and hosted by me, Jennifer Natoso. This series is produced by Audio Boom's Lauren Vogel, Blair Payton, Pam Burrows, Karen Bevan, Alexandra Jueno, and Neil Fern. Production for Woodcut provided by Andy Papadopoulos, Jenny Day, and Kula Anastasi. Original music by Ben Kregi. 
Executive producer for Woodcut is Kate Beal, and for Audio Boom are Brendan Regan and Stuart Last. A special thanks to those close to the case willing to share their stories. If you haven't already, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorite pods. If you have some time, we would love for you to leave us a review. On next week's episode of What Makes a Killer, on November 30th, 1989, in Central Florida, a 51-year-old man picked up a sex worker from the side of the road, but had no idea that she would turn out to be a cold-blooded killer. She was just utterly remorseless. This was somebody who enjoyed watching men die. She shot him four times with a nine-shot revolver. On a killing rampage, this manslayer targeted middle-aged, wealthy men with expensive cars. Very few women have ever killed in such a violent and vile manner in history. <laughs>